So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15, verse 22. Uh, before we get there, though, I want to read a passage out of Matthew, the end of the book of Matthew. So Matthew is uh, the story of, of Jesus. It's what we call one of the Gospels, and at the, at the end of it, you get this commission, you get this charge from Jesus, right? Jesus resurrected from the dead, died on the cross, resurrected from the dead. His followers have seen him, and now he gives them a charge. He says, okay, in light of all, that this, all that's happened here and the fact that you believe in me and you're going to follow me now, what is it that I'm going to lead you in doing? Where, where are we going? What's our mission? And he gives these words in Matthew 18, or 28, verse 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Go and make disciples of all nations. He's speaking to this to a bunch of guys in, in Jerusalem at the time, and the assumption is that they're going to go all over the known world at that time, and eventually those words are applicable to people like us, that the command of Jesus, our Lord, is that we are to engage in his mission around the world to every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every people, to proclaim his gospel and see disciples, followers, learners made because of that work. Now, some people have taken that call particularly seriously, and they have risked everything and gone very, very far, far away to make, make that happen. They see people in other parts of the world, and they say, I, those people need to know about this gospel, about this Jesus. And so they've, they've done that. Some of my favorite people in the history of the Christian church are people who we call missionaries who have gone out very very far places, and so John Patton is one that I've mentioned to you before. He's a guy who went to what's now considered Vanuatu. It's in the South Pacific. Uh, at the time, nobody had ever preached the gospel there. He went out and risked his life, essentially, preaching the gospel there and saw a great deal of fruit because of it. When he left, though, he left and his father walked him basically to the boat or on his way to the boat where he was going to get on and be sent off. So this is the last time his father thinks he might see him in his entire life. And Patton wrote about this, this moment in his autobiography, which is a remarkable book. Here's, here's how this story goes. Patton wrote, he said, My dear father walked with me the first six miles of the way. His counsels and tears and heavenly conversation on that parting journey are fresh in my heart as if they'd been but yesterday, and tears are on my cheeks as freely now as then. Whenever memory steals me away to that scene. For the last half mile or so, we walked on together in almost unbroken silence. My father, as was often his custom, carrying hat in hand, while his long flowing yellow hair streamed like a girl's down his shoulders. His lips kept moving in silent prayers for me. And his tears fell fast when our eyes met each other in looks for which all speech was vain. We halted on reaching the appointed parting place, and he grasped my hand firmly for a minute of silence. And then he solemnly and affectionately said, God bless you, my son. Your father's God prosper you and keep you from all evil. Unable to say more, his lips kept moving in silent prayer, and in tears we embraced and parted 
I ran off as fast as I could and went about to, re- t- about to turn a corner in the road where he would lose sight of me. I looked back and saw him still standing with head uncovered where I'd left him, gazing after me. Waving my hat farewell, I was around the corner and out of sight in an instant, but my heart was too full and too sore to carry me any further, so I darted into the side of the road and wept for a time. And then rising up cautiously, I climbed the dike to see if he yet stood where I had left him. And just at that moment, I caught a glimpse of him climbing the dike and looking out for me. He didn't see me. And after he gazed eagerly in my direction, for a while he got down and headed toward home. His head still uncovered and his heart, I felt sure, still rising in prayers for me. I watched through blinding tears until his form faded from my gaze and then going on my way, I vowed deeply by the help of God to live and act so as never to grieve or dishonor such a father and mother as he had given me. The whole book's like that. <laughs> like it's, whew. Not, not everybody's going to be thrust into the position, though, of John Patton. When I, when I read that, I think that's remarkable that this guy is left behind such a loving family and he's going to go and he's going to probably never see them again so that he can go preach the gospel in this far-off land. He had a ministry at that point in Glasgow, Scotland that was flourishing. He was leaving that behind, leaving his family behind so that he can go and maybe be killed. Most of us aren't going to be that person. Most of us actually are going to be like his dad. We're the, ones, we're the ones who are left behind, and the mission of God is still as important for us. We're the ones who are going to be doing that mission in the local area. We're the ones who are going to be engaging in seeing disciples made in workplaces and communities and homes and all of that sort of stuff while we faithfully go to work and faithfully live out our vocation and our lives here. But does that mean that you and I are absolved of any responsibility for what goes on there? What part, in other words, do we have to play in God's far-off mission? This passage, Romans 15, actually addresses this. It's essentially Paul, the Apostle Paul, who is a missionary, writing back to this particular church and giving them indication on how they can take a part in the ministry that he's got going forward. So in it, we're going to learn how churches like ours can participate with Missionaries with, we're, listen, we're all missionaries. Every last one of us is a missionary locally. But how can we participate with those who are taking great risks and going in far off places to see the gospel preached, whether it's here in Canada or around the world? So three, three things we're going to learn here from that, from what he has to say. Number one, we can learn that we can launch people. Number two, we can give, and number three, we can pray. So launch, give, and pray. It's easy. You don't even need to take notes. Launch, give, and pray. Here's the first of those. We, we can launch. Verse 22 of Romans chapter 15. The Apostle Paul says, this is why I've often been hindered from coming to you. But now there's no place for me or no more place for me to work in these regions. And since I've been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. 
I hope to see you while passing through and have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. This seems like a pretty mundane passage. It's basically Paul giving his like travel plans to, to these guys. There is a question that you should be asking. We've jumped into it right kind of in the middle of the context. And the question you should be asking is, what does the first word mean? The pastor says, this is why I've often been hindered from coming to you. You should say, well, what is, what is this? What is the reason you've been hindered from coming to the church in Rome? Paul's never been there. He's, he's never been to, to the Roman church. He's never visited them. He's written this entire 16-chapter letter to them explaining the gospel to a church that he's never been to, but he's longed to go to. So what has been keeping him busy so that he can't go there? Rome's like the center of the world at that point. It's like the New York City or the London or the Calgary. No, the, like it's... When you find out the answer to that, what, what this is and what's been keeping him busy in just the verses prior, Romans 15, verse 19, the second part of it, it says, so from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. From Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. What have I been doing over this last while that's kept me busy so I can't come and visit you? Well, I've been proclaiming the gospel from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum. Those are just words to you and me, Jerusalem and Illyricum. Where are those? All right, so here we go. I did a Google map search on this one. Uh, so I entered, listen, if I'm leaving Jerusalem and I want to I go to Illyricum, which nowadays is Albania, uh, how could I get there? A uh, lot of toll roads, apparently. And you go through a lot of country borders. It's a 2,900-kilometer. Now, I'm, I'm thinking of saying drive, but Paul wasn't driving, right? Walk. It's a long walk. 2,900 kilometers. This is essentially the distance between Abbotsford and Thunder Bay, Ontario. So if you're thinking about going to Thunder Bay and you want to walk there, you will be experiencing what Paul experienced. Now, the problem is Paul wouldn't go straight there. He didn't think, I want to go to Illyricum, so I'm going to start walking and not stop. Along the way, he was planting churches all over the place. Plant, 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 plant. Stay for a while. Plant, 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 plant. So the point here is that he's been quite busy doing lots of things along those 2,900 kilometers. And so when he says to the Roman church, I've been occupied, he's actually been very occupied. He's been busy planting churches from Jerusalem to Illyricum. But at this point, he says, look, I feel like things are in a place where there's no more ministry for me here. Like I've basically planted enough churches so that they can flourish on their own and reach out to their areas, planted one in the different cities along the way, and now they're responsible for reaching out to their regions. So now I finally feel like I can come to you guys in Rome. And when I get there, here's what I want you to do. Did you see the word? I want you to assist me on my way to Spain. I want to spend some time with you. So it's not just that I want you to assist me, but I want you mainly to assist me. The word really means I want you to, to, to basically be a launch pad. I want you to be a resource center for me as I go further into this ministry to Spain. So... Maybe an image here is, is helpful for what, of what he wants from them. Uh, World War II, uh, some of you know, the, know the, the name Midway. So the Battle of Midway in World War II was one of the biggest battles that happened during that entire, during that entire war, especially in the war in the Pacific. Uh, if you go to Midway today, 
you would wonder why it was such an important place. So here's a picture of Midway. That's the Midway Atoll. That's, that's it, guys. There's nobody who lives there today. Nobody at all. In fact, a uh, little weird side note, it's in the middle of the, of the Pacific Ocean garbage pit. So if you go there today, it's just plastic everywhere and dead birds who eat the plastic. So you can take tours, eco-tours there and see the effects of all of our straws and things like that there. But why it's important is on the right-hand side of the picture. It was big enough to put an airport. In the middle of the Pacific Ocean, you could have an airport. Why is the airport important? Well, if you look at where it is located globally, you'll see why. The Midway Atoll is right in the middle between Japan and the United States. See, in those days, they didn't have planes that could go far enough to go across those oceans and bomb each other, so you needed a stopping point. You know what's a perfect stopping point? You know what's a perfect launch pad? The Midway Atoll. And so one of the biggest fights during, the, during, the, during World War II in the Pacific was over that little piece of island so that people, whether you're Japan wanting to bomb the United States or if the United States wanting to bomb Japan, if you own it, you have access. It was a perfect launching pad. This is a, this is a lovely image. This is a, the image of what Paul's trying to say. He's saying, listen, what I need is I need a, a place from which I can be resourced so that I can go out to, to the regions beyond you. So I can see the mission of God flourish in those other places. And you, Roman church, you can be that. Now, I bring all of this up because there are some churches that are located in God's providence so that they can serve in this function. And I'm telling you that part of the vision of Northview is that we be that church. We want to be the church that is the launch pad for all sorts of other places. You may say, well, we're not that significant. Neither was Midway. It's just a little dot, a bunch of dead birds. But we want to be that launching pad. And our approach right now is actually to partner with, we say, we want to reach Canada. We want to revitalize churches in Canada. We want to plant churches in Canada. We see a gospel renewal in Canada through the local church. But the way that we're going about doing that is serving as a launch pad ourselves for our region, but also in partnership with other churches around Canada that, they, that will themselves serve as a launch pad. And so we are good friends with a church, a Presbyterian church in Toronto that is a real gospel-centered church, Grace Toronto. Dan McDonald is the pastor there. They're reaching out to secular people in the middle of the city of Toronto, and they have a vision to plant churches all over the place. There are so few gospel-centered churches in the city of Toronto, guys. And Dan wants to plant them. And so we say, look, we, we, can, we can resource you so that you can end up being this Roman church that is a launch pad for all the Pauls that we send you. We have another relationship with a church in, um, in Newfoundland, which is under snow colossally right now. His name's Stephen Bray at Cornerstone Baptist. Did you know that Newfoundland is one of the least reached places in Canada? People don't usually know that. We think about Quebec as being a place where very, very few people would claim to be Christian, certainly of the evangelical variety, but Newfoundland is like right up there with them in terms of the statistics. This guy's got a plan to, 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 to plant churches in 10 of the regions around Newfoundland. They need resourcing and help, but they are like this Roman church, a, a place that you can launch from. 
And this is our vision going forward. When we talk about multiplication around Canada, that's how we want to do it. In partnership with Baptist and Presbyterian and Mennonite Brethren and Alliance gospel-centered churches that can be launch pads to launch people into those regions and see gospel come through local churches. I'm kind of excited about it. All right? That's why I became a Canadian. All right. <laughs> Second, though, so we can launch. How can we help the mission of God go forward in the far-off places? We can launch Second, we can give. Verse 25, now, however, I'm on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. You should be thinking, what's the service of the Lord's people there? Paul, what are you going to do in Jerusalem? Are you going to, like, do a church service? What, is it? what do you mean service? For Macedonia and Achaia, those are two states, basically, two provinces. So Macedonia was where Philippi and Thessalonica were, two big cities. And uh, Achaia was where Corinth was. Modern day Greece, basically. Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. That's the service he wants to do. He's taking a collection for the poor of the Lord's people in Jerusalem. Verse 27, they, these churches in Macedonia and Achaia, were pleased to do it, to give to the contribution. And indeed, they owe it to them. These Gentile churches owe it to these Jewish churches. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessing, they owe it to the Jews to share with them in their material blessings. So, here's my plan, he said. After I've completed this task, this giving of the contribution to this church in Jerusalem and have made sure that they have received the contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I'll come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. So he wants to visit the Roman church, but he says, I've got an errand that I need to run first. It's along the way. Just hold on. I want to show you another map. All right, so this one is a little simpler. You see in the top left corner the city of Rome, which is where he wants to go to visit these people. You also see in the bottom right corner the city of Jerusalem, which is where he says, I have an errand to run. In the middle, you can see Corinth. That's where he's writing from. So he's like, I'll, I'll be right back. <laughs> I'm just going to go over here to Jerusalem, drop this stuff off, and then I'll come and see you guys. Now, Paul, if you're going to go that far out of the way, like your heart's, heart is to go to Spain, your heart is to use the Roman church as your launch pad into Spain, if you're going to go that far out of the way, the thing you're going out of the way for must be pretty important. So what is it? And you saw it there, it's this collection, this contribution. And so we learn about this contribution. Paul basically was going to, around to a bunch of the Gentile churches. There was a famine in Jerusalem. And the church there, the Jewish church in Jerusalem, from which all the other churches came, was suffering. They didn't have enough money. People weren't able to eat. So Paul was going around to all of the other churches that he had planted in the Gentile world, which were largely Gentile churches, and saying, hey, can you guys help? And he was really explicit about it. So 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1, he says, now about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. So he's already spoken to the Galatian churches. Now he's speaking to the Corinthian church. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. So you're already giving to the local church. 
But I want you to set aside an extra bit. At the beginning of every week, not everybody needs to do the same amount. It needs to be keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. I don't want to have to beg you when I get there and not, you not be warned about all of this. Verse 3, then when I arrive, I'll give letters of introduction to the men you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. And he did believe it was going to be advisable. And so we learn in this passage in Romans that he was going to take this gift, this contribution from all of these churches. He was going to take it to Jerusalem. Now, there is a symbolic power to this gift for Paul. Like it, the biggest thing that was going on in these churches was fights between Jews and Gentiles. How do you get these two groups together? They've been hostile to each other forever. Enemies. And yet God has brought them together in Christ the gospel is for both Jew and Gentile. So it's symbolic. So he's basically saying, look, can you imagine what's going to happen when I show up to the Jewish church with this pile of money from Gentiles? How they're going to feel. They're going to be like, oh my goodness, we're all part of the same family. So the symbolism's remarkable. Also, Paul's like, there's kind of an obligation that these Gentile churches do have to the Jewish church because it was the Jewish Messiah that they're benefiting from. And it was from this Jerusalem church that all the others came. So you guys kind of owe it, you know, like a church that's planted that sees the mother church floundering. The church that's planted does have an obligation, don't they? To try to help out. And so Paul makes that argument here as well. But the most important thing that you need to notice about it is the little word when he says they were pleased to do it. So Paul comes and has this, hey, I need you to give some extra money. And he says, they were, pleased, they were pleased to do it. The churches of Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to do it. That is such an understatement for him in this context. Because in other places, he describes how pleased they were to do it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, this is how he describes the pleasure of the Gentile churches in giving to this contribution. Here he says, and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Thessalonica, Philippi. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy. He said things aren't going well. Very severe trial, but they have joy in the midst of the trial and their extreme poverty. They got nothing. But that joy mixed together with the poverty in the midst of the trial welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. It's like Paul's saying, stop, you guys can't do this. You don't have it. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Oh, please let us give more, Paul. I know we don't have it, but we want to do it. You seen the, movie, the show uh, Dragon's Den or Shark Tank? Okay. No? Okay, I have. You, you know this show. Of course, you know there's a bunch of business people who are sitting there and they in their cushy chairs and they have people come in and give uh, a business presentation on why it is that these business people ought to invest in their product, right? So the product is always something like, you know, I came up with this toe cleaner and it's amazing and you, you need to have it. You just touch your toes and immediately they sparkle and shine and no more smell and it's amazing. We love it. 
But then the people in the shark tank or the dragon's den sit there, cross their arms, and start asking them very pointed questions about their business model or why it is that they, how they came to this, this place and what, what they've done in the past to market the, the thing and how many people know about it. And they end up deciding whether or not they want to be involved or not. This posture of the dragon's den or shark tank folks is with the arms crossed and, say, and it's essentially, uh, prove it to me. Impress me with your sales pitch. This is decidedly not how the churches acted when Paul made the request. They did not sit back with their arms crossed and say, uh, did the Jerusalem church do anything to get themselves in this trouble? Perhaps they should have known ahead of time that there would be a famine and they could have done what Joseph did and stored up grain. Hmm? So I'm not going to bail them out now. They, they did not sit back and say, Paul, give me your best shot when it comes to convincing me to give. Paul couldn't even get the words out of his mouth. He's like, hey, guys, I want you to make a contribution. Really? How much? Here, eagerly pleaded with him. That's what it means, that they were pleased to do it. I wonder if that eager, urgent pleading is our posture or if the shark tank is more what we're like. So a uh, little background to the way the Bible understands giving. In the Old Testament, there was a tithe. It was 10% of your income. There were taxes in Israel on top of that. You had to pay your taxes. It's like you pay taxes to the government. But on top of that, there was a 10% tithe to the Lord's work, oftentimes associated with the temple and all that was going on there. 10%. Everybody knew what to give. 10%. There's a debate about whether or not that 10% pers persists in the New Testament. Some people say, yeah, 10% New Testament. Jesus at one point talks about it and doesn't deny it, but kind of affirms it, but the emphasis in the New Testament, though, in terms of why it is you should give is never based upon the law. You don't find that. You don't find the Apostle Paul coming along and saying, you should give money because 10%, the law says. Instead, what you find when he argues or asks people for money, you find a different motivation. Here's, here's what it is. He says it, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, that same passage where he's talking about how, how these people urgently pleaded with him to give the money. Later he said, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So here's why it is you should give money, he says in the New Testament, in light of what Jesus has done. He who is rich became poor so that you could become rich. Consider the grace of Jesus in the gospel and what he's done for you. Treasure forevermore has been lavished on you, not because you deserved it, but because of his grace. Consider that. So don't take the law and say, well, 10%. The question you should be asking is not what the law requires, but what does Jesus require? What does Jesus motivate me to do? What does Jesus and his grace push me toward when it comes to my money? So here's some statistics. In Canada today, these are Canada-specific statistics, um, 
Christians, and that is a broad term, anybody who calls themselves Christian gives 2.43% of their income. That is the average. 2.43% to the broad range of, of people called Christians. Now, that's not to the local church necessarily. That's 2.43 to any, anything. It's based upon tax returns and things like that. Evangelicals, so if you want to be more narrow in your definition of Christian, you say, well, anybody can call themselves a Christian. A lot of people don't go to church. A lot of people aren't really serious about it. Okay, people call themselves evangelical and report that they go to church regularly. The percentage goes up to 4% to all, to all charities, 4%. So if you ask modern Christians the question that the New Testament asks, what is Jesus worth? The law said 10%. In comparison to the law, what is Jesus, the new covenant, the grace, the merited, the fact that you've received merit that you didn't deserve? What is that worth? And the response, about half. A little less than half. John Wesley had a saying when he was asked, what does the Bible teach about money? He said, uh, well, make all you can, save all you can, and give all you can. We've turned that into get all you can, can all you get, and sit on the can. <laughs> you and I love, I mean, it's Christmas time just ended, right? So um, you and I love that, that Scrooge story, don't we? Christmas Carol. In many of its different forms with, you know, Mickey Mouse at some points and Disney does it and you can watch Dickens' original. I mean, we love the story. It's, it's, it's amazing, right? The early Scrooge is a jerk. Don't like him at all. He's a miser. He holds on to everything and even though his, his worker, Bob Cratchit, has great needs, his son is dying he still makes him come in on Christmas Day, won't pay him very little, won't give him enough coal to put into the fire. He's a jerk, Scrooge, this early Scrooge. You're kind of happy when, when the spirits start visiting him. At least maybe something will change. But as upset as we are with early Scrooge, we love equally late Scrooge. I do. And the spirits come, the three of them, and, and, and then he wakes up in his bed after thinking he was sees his future with the spirit of Christmas future. He's, he's freaked out, sweating, realizes it was all a dream, but what a dream. And the first thing he does is goes over to the window and he throws it open and he sees a little kid on the street and he says, you there, what day is it? It's Christmas morning, of course. Go down to the shop and purchase the, I think it's a goose. Ugh. Right? But it's, go down and get the goose and I want you to take it to Cratchit's home. The rest of the story is about how he visits his nephew who's hated him before, but now he's generous and open-hearted and walking down the street and becomes known as a man in the community who is more generous than anybody else. We love late Scrooge. The problem is we, we talk about it all the time. Oh, that's, such a, that's the way it is. You smile on Christmas Day. That's the way the world should be. The problem is you and I aren't late Scrooge. We are early Scrooge. If statistics are trustworthy at all, even among evangelical Christians, we are not late Scrooge. So here's the question. 
How do you get to be him without the Spirit? How do you get to be late Scrooge? The Bible actually gives you some answers to that. I'll give you two. Number one, um, I think you need to let the gospel seep in. The response, I mean, the, the temptation here at this point is like, you need to do better. How do you get there? Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, reach into your pocket, and give more. So I'm going to yell you into it. No, actually, the New Testament would argue, as Paul did before, consider him who was rich who became poor that you might become rich. Consider, consider the grace that you've received. You know, there's a story about this little guy, Zacchaeus. He's a tax collector. He climbs up into a tree. Jesus sees him up there. Nobody likes Zacchaeus. He is a greedy Scrooge. He says to this greedy Scrooge, he stops and speaks to him and says, I want to have lunch with you today. He shows grace to the guy. I'm not going to treat you like everybody else does. I'm not going to turn you away. I'm going to actually have a meal with you showing that you're, you're my friend. He goes over and has a meal with Zacchaeus. Halfway through the, through the meal, Zacchaeus stands up unsolicited and says, I want to give half of everything I've got and have stolen away. I want to give it all to the poor. This is like a biblical Scrooge story. What happened between Zacchaeus before he climbed up in the tree and Zacchaeus when he gives everything away? And the answer, grace. Jesus showed him grace. Has Jesus showed you grace? Consider him who was rich that became poor that you might become rich. All that you have, all the blessings of the future, all the blessings of the present, all unmerited, all yours because of what Christ has done. You dwell on that long enough, it starts to seep in and it changes you. It changes you into being people who look at the money and think, why in the world am I clutching onto this? Jesus has got me. This is just a tool now. So let the gospel seep in. Secondly, how do you become late, Scrooge? Uh, you got to stop worrying. Let's be honest. The reason that you and I, the reason that you and I don't like to talk about giving is because it freaks us out. I get worried. I get worried that I'm not going to be able to pay for my retirement. We hear that repeatedly on the TV with all the commercials saying, do you have enough? Do you have enough? Do you know you need to have this much and that much and this much and that much and all the insurances and protect from all of these problems? You hear it repeatedly, and so you're worried. If I start giving more money, am I going to have enough later? Is my lifestyle going to be like, worry, 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 worry. I have to build bigger things. I have to increase the size of my wealth and hold on to it and sit on the can because I need to take care of the future. Isn't it prudent to do that? Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 12 about a rich fool. He says this guy actually had a whole bumper crop and he decided, what, what should I do with all this, this crop? The assumption, of course, in the culture of the day was, well, you should give it away to the gleaners, the people who don't have anything. Instead, he was like, nah, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna build bigger barns. So he built bigger barns, he filled it with the grain and he sat down on his porch with his lemonade and said, oh, my soul is happy and I am taken care of forever and ever. And Jesus then says to him, you fool, your life is required of you tonight, and what are these barns going to serve you? And you and I think, yeah, that, that's, that's right. But inside we're thinking, but if I don't do the bigger barns, I'm going to start worrying about my future. And it's really interesting that the next verse in that passage 
is this. Ready? So do not worry, says Jesus. It's almost like he knew what you were thinking. So do not worry about what you will eat or what you will wear. Do you guys ever see those sparrows, those common birds that just fly around? They're fed every single day. Some of them are stinking fat. They don't worry. They don't toil. The grass of the field, you see the flowers? They're gorgeous. You take pictures of them and putting them on Instagram. Solomon in all his splendor wasn't dressed as well as they are. Don't you think that God cares more for you than he does a bunch of birds and some, some grass that's gonna be cut up and burned in a fire? Oh, you of little faith. Let the gospel sink in. Stop worrying. Take a risk on God. He cannot be outspent. Here's the last one. Quickly. About prayer. Right? Verse 30, I urge you, brothers and sisters, he said, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle. How can you partner together with a missionary? Join them in the struggle by praying to God for me. Pray I might be kept safe from unbelievers in Judea and the contribution that I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there so that I might come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. I wanna show you three things as we finish here, three things in this passage that, uh, about prayer, okay? Number one, how can you partner together with missionaries? You join the struggle. It's a struggle. Amen. Prayer is a struggle. The word comes from athletic imagery. It's a, it's a word that's used of wrestling or boxing. Uh, my son's been working out a lot lately for baseball. He's getting pretty big, but he, and he thinks he comes home, and I think the test of his, we have feats of strength at our home now, and he basically says, Ooh, you, want a, you want a piece of me? You want a piece of me? And he comes right up, 16 years old, you want a piece of me? And he comes right up here all chesty with me, and so we, he starts a pushing contest, and I just kind of stand there. You know, and he pushes and pushes, and then I start leaning in, and he goes sliding backwards, you know, and I push him against the wall, and I say, I'm here all day, you know? <laughs> when he's pushing, though, like, he's giving everything he's got. I mean, I'm, I'm like, one-third effort, but, like, he's giving everything he's got, and, 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 he, and he's trying his best. This is, the, this is the image that Paul says, wrestle, struggle. Push, it's gonna be hard. I don't know why it is that you and I think that prayer is just gonna come easily. It doesn't, does it? Let's be honest, it's hard. Because what happens when you sit down and you're going to pray is you say, okay, Lord, I'm here to pray with you now. I've even chosen this tree, under this tree in this forest, which is supposed to spur my attention. Ooh, look at that sparrow. Hmm, <laughs> I like sparrows. You know what other birds I like? Seahawks. I wonder when they're playing. I should probably check to find out um, when that game is, and well, there's a podcast here. I mean, I just, Lord, I'm just going to listen to this podcast for a while, and then I'm going to get to the prayer. Right? Your mind just all over the place, and then you're like, oh, Lord, I'm just so bad at this. Yes, it's hard. It's hard to do. People who've done it for a long time say, well, it gets easier. You know, they sound like people who have gotten on the exercise bike and have done it for three years and are like, actually, it's easier. Yeah, because people who get on exercise bikes are used to the struggle of it. 
You and I, when we first started, we're not used to the struggle of, we think, why isn't this any easier? Because it's a struggle. Expect to break a sweat. Put on your gym clothes. Find a place like a closet where there aren't any Seahawks. Leave the phone away. Sit there for 10 minutes, five minutes, whatever it is. Find a place, find a place. If it's walking, if it's driving or whatever, shut the radio off. Say, Lord, I'm gonna commit for the next few minutes just to pray to you. And you will grow in it. It's a struggle. Second, you know, in prayer, we ought to ask God for all kinds of things because he has authority over all kinds of things. Now, when I say that, I'm saying that you notice what Paul asks you to pray for there. I want you to pray that I'll be kept safe from unbelievers in Judea, so physical protection, and and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem will be favorably received by the Lord's people there. So outward protection and inward favor. You know that God can protect you outwardly, right? He can protect you from all sorts of physical dangers and you should plead for that. Lord, I don't want my leg to get broken. Lord, I don't want to get cancer. Lord, keep me from harm physically. But the thing that you and I sometimes don't believe is that God can move a heart and he does. If the Bible can be trusted on any point, it's this one, isn't it? The Egyptians, when the people of Israel were being freed by God from their hand, and they're going to go out and worship God in the wilderness and eventually leads to the Red Sea. The Egyptians, their enemies, their owners, ended up saying to the slaves who were leaving, oh, I feel bad for you. Take my candlesticks. Their silver and gold was handed over. God says, and therefore they plundered the Egyptians without a shot fired. Why are the Egyptians handing over this stuff? Because the Lord moves hearts. Proverbs 21, 1 The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord and he turns it like a water course wherever he pleases, right? I want the king, the most sovereign person in the planet to think that. Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, you're pretty arrogant. Let's make you not. So when you pray, you should be praying forever. You should pray, Lord, Lord, can you give my boss a heart for me when I go and I proclaim his word? To other people, would you open their hearts like you did Lydia so that they can receive the message? My husband, would you move in his heart that he would love me? That girl who doesn't think I exist, Lord, make her see me. Right? I mean, just go for it. Just go for it. Ask for everything because God has authority over everything. But, but finally, you've got to be open to his answer you got to be open to his answer. You notice that last little phrase, uh, verse 30, so, so that I may come to you with joy by God's will. There's no demanding, God, you better do this. You promised. Do it this way or else. I'm turning away from you. No way, no. By, by God's will. You know what's fascinating about this passage of Scripture? is that Paul's prayer actually comes to fruition in a weird way that he doesn't even expect. He goes to Jerusalem with his contribution. When he shows up in Jerusalem, the Jews want to kill him. So it looks like he's, he's not, the prayer for physical protection is not going to come through, but the Roman government steps in, saves him from that, arrests him, shields off everyone who wants to pelt him with stones, imprisons him so he's safe, and then he ends up being delivered to Rome under guard, and he ends up visiting the church in Rome for free. Was this what he planned? No. Was his prayer answered? Yes. Does this sound familiar? 
Look, God will answer your prayers how you would answer them yourself if you know what he knows. God will answer your prayers the way you would answer them if you knew what he knows. So keep open hands to it. Isn't this what Jesus did when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane in the end? Here he is, he's praying and he's sweating blood. Oh God, if there's any way for you to take this cup from me, let it happen. I don't want to go to the cross. It's going to be so difficult and it's so, I know what I'm going to face there. Hell itself, it's pain, it's sorrow, it's heartache. Is there any other way? And yet he says, not my will be done, but yours. And there it is. That's how we pray. In the hands of a sovereign God who cares for us. Let me pray for us. Father, I'm so thankful for your grace. And I'm thankful, Father, for this little passage. There's more to say about it. I could, well, I've actually come to love these little vignettes into Paul's life and his ministry and so much to learn from him. So I'm thankful for what we've been able to see here today. Help us to be a launching church. Help us to be a giving church. And help us to be a praying church, we pray. Help us to apply those things into our lives by the power of your spirit now. Change our hearts, Lord, so that we might see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray to that end in Jesus' name. Amen.